That's it, black and white. If you don't observe the Sabbath and you force others to do the same, you are definitively going to hell. So I thought I'd try to gently reason with him. I'd send him just a few verses on the gospel of grace to consider. No, not interested. I got long rant after rant after rant back with the repeated accusation, I am a heretic. No humility, no gentleness, no concern to, to respect those he was communicating with. Most of us, if not all of us, he had never even shared a room with before in his life. Friends, the way that we speak to one another, the way that we communicate, especially before a watching world, it matters. Paul's concern is that outsiders see the humility of God in his people, in his church. Words of grace, of love, of respect. Even in the face of injustice, words that commend the gospel of grace. And I know that I am an abject failure in this regard. I mean, what motivation do we really have to strive for this kind of tough humility? Well, Paul helps us to answer that question. Why strive for this, for this humility? Paul gives us three reasons. The first one is, well, just look at your grim past. Look at your grim past as a Christian. Come with me to verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's very extreme, isn't it? What Paul describes as the past for us as Christians, what was before. Foolish, led astray, enslaved to destructive passions and pleasures, hated by, by others and hating one another. You see, our world wants to say that deep down, each of us individually, we are free and that we are good. That's what our world wants to say about us as humanity. As we live for self, there are no constraints. We are free and we can be the good people that we aspire to be as well. Just get the right education. Adopt the right attitude. And God says different. Left to our own devices, we are not free. We always have a master. And left with sin as our master, our default setting is not to do good in all things, but to be prone to do evil as we resist God over our lives. We come instead under the wrongful influence of wrongful desires that are deeply destructive for us. And, and we've all done that. I've done that. We fail to love God as our God and honor him rightly as our Lord and provider. And instead, what do we do? We turn in on ourselves. What matters most in life really at the end of the day is me and getting things my way. I've been watching a, a, a drama on Netflix recently. I'm really enjoying it. It's called The Crown. It depicts the early years of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, the events that led up to her being crowned queen and then her early years as queen. And it doesn't leave out any of the ugly details. Beneath all of the pomp and all of the luxury, you see the bitter feuding and fighting within the royal family. There's a deep hatred that's borne by her uncle, who years before abdicated the throne, said, no, I will not take it, because his desire, above all, was to marry a woman already married to another man. So the crown was forced onto his brother, 
King George VI, Elizabeth's father, and it crippled him, the weight of that responsibility. He struggled to live under the pressure over it. He died, and of course his daughter Elizabeth then took the crown, and the hatred borne by her, by her mother and her sister Margaret, against her uncle for seeking his own wrongful desires over and above his responsibilities to be king. The hatred shown by them and then the hatred he showed them in return for having to give up the crown to be with the woman that he wanted to be with, even though it was wrong. As Paul says, passing their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We are familiar with this, aren't we? I know, if I'm being honest, I've hated others in my own living for self, and I've been hated in return for it. See, living for self, as though we are number one, it destroys harmony in families and communities. It's a symptom of the brokenness of our world, not the freedom of it, the fact that we're out of right relationship with God, who we were made to find our rest and peace in. And Paul says, that is what God has saved you from. Do you realize? Living blindly and destructively for self, over and against him, and over and against others. God alone has worked to actually save us out of that misery, so we can instead love one another and him from the heart. Put one another's needs first and live at peace with others where possible. God's done that. God's made that possible. And so Paul says, secondly, look to your gracious rescue. You want to know how to learn humility? Live humility, look to your gracious rescue. Let's look at verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Friends, Paul is clear. We can never hope to love God and to love others from the heart until we have first depended on God's loving kindness to us in Christ. Being a Christian is not about turning over a new leaf trying really hard to be the good person we know that we should be and somehow working our way into God's good books. No, being a Christian is about receiving a new life, a new power to love God and others again as we should, a power that comes only by His Spirit. We're told, verse 5, His Spirit who washes us in two ways to make us clean. Firstly, that word there in verse 5, by the washing of regeneration. Regeneration. That's what we need to start with. You see, in sin, we're not sick people who need a little bit of help to get better. In sin, we're told, Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, we are those who are dead, spiritually dead. Dead people don't need medicine. They need spiritual resurrection. That's what regeneration means. It means bringing new life where there was no life. And God alone does that. He alone brought life and all things out of nothing. He alone raised his son from the dead. And so he alone can breathe new life into us by his spirit. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly 
through Jesus Christ our Savior. How do we receive this power? How can we know new life with God? One way, through faith in Christ. He has been poured out, the Spirit's been poured out on the basis of Christ's works. What we see in Pentecost, isn't it? First in Acts 2. The Spirit is poured out. We see that manifested in amazing ways. And as a result, Peter stands up. And what does he do? He starts preaching about Jesus. How Jesus is God's Savior and King. He is our hope for salvation from sin. Repent, be baptized, and you will be saved. And receive the same Spirit as well. And if we have done that, if we have repented and trusted on Christ, well then the Spirit will be working to change us. You see back in verse 6, the second work of the Spirit, the second word is renewal. He washes us in regeneration and renewal. A continual renewal of attitudes and desires which show forth a proper response to Jesus as our King. Romans 12 verse 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God, by His Spirit, now makes it possible for us to do this. Not overnight, but over years. As we sit under His life-giving Word and respond to it with the Spirit's strength in faith and obedience, well, so our hearts are changed to love others and love Him rightly. And hopefully, if we are Christian here this morning, we can look back over the years and we can see something of that reality, how we have genuinely grown in Christ-like humility, because this is not an optional extra for us. It's a sign that we are genuinely born of the Spirit through faith in Christ. It's a guarantee of what is to come. Thirdly, Paul says, look to your glorious future. Now, I mentioned Queen Elizabeth before. Long before she was crowned queen, she and her sister Margaret, uh, they got to go on their first public engagement. They were still very, very small children at the time. And before they left the palace to go on this public engagement, their their mother called them over, sat them down on on two chairs, and, and said to them very simple words. Girls, royal children, royal manners. Royal children, royal manners. They were reminded, you are members of the royal family who will inherit royal titles one day, and so you are now, even as children, to go out and behave like it, with all honor and integrity before the public they would one day serve. Well, see what God says that we've become entirely by His grace, and what we have to look forward to now. Verse 7, so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Through faith in Christ, we have become heirs with Him. We are now members of God's household set on inheriting His eternal kingdom with Christ our King. And again, just one reason that we have this amazing future to look forward to rather than the condemnation we deserve for our sin, nothing but God's grace. His undeserved favor to us in Christ who died, that we might live. Why should our lives as Christians be shaped 
by humility, by a concern to put others' needs first before our own and to treat them with genuine Christ-like love. Look to your past, brought out of the misery of sin entirely by the grace of God. Look to your present, given the power by God's Spirit to love God and others from the heart now and look to your future. You are an heir with Christ, set on inheriting His eternal kingdom. One few, why? Because Christ as God and King laid down His life for you that you might be forgiven and have eternal life. If we value these things, we will show it in the way that we live. You see what Paul says in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. Paul says the very proof that we really have believed on God we, we've genuinely turned from our sin and instead believed on His Son, it will show itself in a concern to do good in His eyes. Works that are pleasing to Him, that model His grace, His love. And Paul says those things are excellent and profitable for us. Now, friends, the world will disagree. It will call us fools for serving others at genuine cost to ourselves. I mean, the world will say, look, life is short, guys. Be, yeah, okay, be polite where it makes sense and, and be good. But honoring corrupt officials, refusing to badmouth those who badmouth you, avoiding fights and quarrels when you yourself, you're getting picked on, that kind of humility isn't smart. It's foolish. I mean, where's the game? Life is short. But friends, that's coming from a world and from a heart that does not know the love of Christ that does not treasure the grace we've been shown by God or the eternal future that we have in His grace as a result. As we serve our enemies, even, at cost to ourselves, we know it will be to our profit in the end. When God installs His Son who humbled Himself at the hands of His enemies to death, when God installs His Son as King over all, and all will give account to Him. And on that day, the Christ-like love that we've been shown to others, it will count. The ways in which we've shown that Jesus is our King will count. And who knows, maybe there will be others standing with us on that final day, entering into His kingdom because they saw something of our Christ-like example. And so they saw Christ in us and started to take Him seriously as well. Well, sadly, Paul knows there are going to be pretenders in the church. There were on Crete. They say the right things sometimes. They profess Christ's name, but they do not model it in humility in their lives. They show no sign of the Spirit at working to redeem and renew. What about the pretenders? How was Titus to deal with them? Well, here it is. How are they to deal with those who refuse humility? Verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Paul's first advice to Titus is, do not join in. You see, many in the church were neck deep in these really silly arguments and squabbles that had no value at all. 
Some were invested in genealogies, thinking, oh, uh, your bloodline makes a, a difference. Uh, your family tree, who you came from, that, that makes a difference in God's eyes. Well, John in his gospel says the very opposite. But to all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Salvation is a gift of grace. We don't inherit it on the basis of who our mummy or daddy is. And these arguments over bloodlines are not just silly, they're destructive. They are causing dissensions, infighting amongst the churches, quarrels over the law. Because if some are taking bloodlines seriously, most likely Jewish ones, well then quarrels over the rest of the law are going to be coming up as well. As we've already seen in Titus, arguments over this is what you should eat, that's what you must avoid. This is how you clean your cups to make yourself pure before God. As if any of it makes any difference whatsoever. One hope is what we have before God, and that is Christ and his finished work for us. And so Paul says all these silly arguments, they are unprofitable and worthless, but there would be some who would pursue them relentlessly to the damage of the church. What does Paul say back in 1 verse 11 to Titus? Have a look. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And here again, he tells Titus to warn such people, chapter 3, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. It's really strong. Paul says, for those who persist in dividing the church over nonsense issues, warn them once, twice, then have nothing more to do with them. Effectively, you break fellowship with them, Titus. You no longer consider them to be a brother or sister in Christ because they have shown by their behavior, their persistent unrepentant behavior, that they are outside of the faith. See how Paul goes on in verse 11? Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Friends, as John Calvin said, we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It will show itself in a repentant life. If our behavior persistently goes against Christ and his gospel instead, without any concern for repentance really, then our faith is no real faith at all. We are pretenders, not performers, who show that Christ is Lord in our lives. And Titus was to break off with these pretenders in Crete, to no longer consider them part of the church, very much like what Jesus says in Matthew 18. For those who persist in unrepentant sin after being warned again and again, once you've brought other people and they've warned them, well, then they are to be brought before the church and they are to be, as it were, cast out. Now, Christ died for tax collectors and sinners. We, as his people, are still to love and serve those outside of the faith. So it doesn't mean excommunication, as it's commonly understood, as in having absolutely no contact of any kind whatsoever anymore. No, our chief concern for individuals in this situation is that they do repent. So we don't break off all contact, but we don't simply socialize with them and pretend, look, everything's okay, when it really isn't. 
we urge such unrepentant people to take Christ seriously. It's good for all of us to reflect this morning. Are there silly squabbles that we're involved in right now that don't pertain to any serious matters in the faith, that are doing nothing to build up fellow brothers and sisters in truth and love, just gossip, slander, and self-righteous squabbling? If and where we see these things in us or in the life of our church, well, let's resolve to repent, to make amends, to bear the humility of Christ as performers, not pretenders in the faith. Personally, as, as the pastor here, I am thankful for the genuine Christ-like love I see on the whole in us, this church family. I am really thankful for that but we must watch ourselves closely. There would be nothing worse for us here at SMAC 1 than to become one who is divisive, warped, sinful, and self-condemned. Nothing worse than that. It, it wasn't Paul's desire for these guys. No, he hoped that Titus, in great patience, would restore them before it's too late. And so he ends on a really positive note. He promotes some practical ways for Titus and this church to be truly humble. We see humility in action. Come with me to verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. You see, here is Christ-like humility being promoted into action. Paul's going to send two friends to relieve Titus at some point, and as soon as he gets the pastoral cover, he is to rush to Paul's aid. And in the meantime, he's to take good care of Zenos the lawyer and Apollos, who's a gospel partner that we, we meet throughout the New Testament. And Titus was to ensure, look, make sure they have everything that they need. That was Paul's urge for him and for all under his care to count others more important than themselves, to be quick to serve where possible. In verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need not be unfruitful. And Paul further assures them, look, it's not just you guys who are going to be living this way. See, he's not the only one to sign off the letter. Verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Titus is assured that there are many with Paul who are striving to show humility, loving service in Christ, seeking to live for the good of God's people and his world. Paul's final farewell. Look at the last five words. He says, grace be with you all. Because Paul knew it was nothing but that, the grace of God that was going to make all the difference in the end. For Titus on Crete... For us here at SMAC and KL today, well, we rely on God's grace to secure us, and we know that as we appreciate that grace, well, God's Spirit will work to shape us, to fix our eyes on Christ. What we're going to remember next week, born to us that first Christmas morning, our Creator, our King, who came to die, that we might live. Only as we delight in that awesome grace will we be compelled to love as he loved us, to be performers, not pretenders. Let me close with a beautiful example that I saw of this a few years ago. There was a Bible college having some financial issues. 
and it couldn't afford to keep its cleaning staff. And so the president of the college emailed the entire student body, asked if they would consider starting a cleaning roster so that everyone could help to keep the toilets clean for the good of the whole college. And he received back only refusals and complaints. Things along the lines of, we're, we're pastors in training. We're not toilet cleaners. We pay fees to learn here. We can't be distracted by such menial duties. And so the appeal failed. And yet somehow the toilets remained clean every day since the appeal had failed. And a few months later, a student came in incredibly early into a college that uh, one morning to prepare for an exam. And, and what did he see before him on the path? he saw his Bible college president wearing an apron with a mop in one hand and a cloth in the other. Because the Bible college president had come in early every morning since the appeal had failed to clean the toilets himself. The president of the college for the good of his students who wanted nothing to do with this form of service. There is a man who delights in the love of Christ and who is shaped by it, humbly serving at great cost to himself despite the pride and the ridicule of his own students. Well, his cleaning crew grew significantly once the word got out. Friends, let's not wait to be humbled by others. In response to this word, what we've seen in Titus, let's be performers, not pretenders. Quick to devote ourselves to good works in Christ, ever willing to serve, even if it hurts, showing that we truly belong to him. That Christ is ours and we are his. We live not for our own selfish gain, but we live for him. And we live for the good of those whom he came to die for and save. Because our security... Our joy is not in the selfish comforts of this world, but it's in his kingdom to come. So let's live for it this week. And let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that it is not that we loved you, but that you, in your awesome grace, loved us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came as creator and king of all. You were born in the most humble of circumstances. And you were born to live and die that we, your enemies, might be forgiven our every sin and have the promise of eternal life in your name. Pray that you would help us in the light of that awesome grace to be responding in Christ-like humility toward all, to be quick to serve, to be slow to become angry, to be offering up our lives as holy and pleasing to you in all forms of service, showing ourselves to be those who do belong to your kingdom. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.